So, uh, as I said, today we're wrapping up the series, Me and My Big Mouth, and I want to emphasize me and my big mouth. I, I, I don't know about you, but I found it incredibly hard to a- apply and, and really live out uh, what we've been teaching, so much so that I, I'm trying to think of for our next series, finding something that's really easy for me to apply, so I have, feel way more comfortable up here uh, presenting this. We've been in this talk for a, a few weeks, and we really started with, with uh, the book of James, and it's it, it just absolutely amazing to me that we have a document that was written by the brother of Jesus in the first century. James is the brother of Jesus, and in this document, he kind of lays out the bottom line for where we went this entire series. I've had you repeat this phrase over and over again so you don't forget it. And really, I don't think there's any way to make it more simple. There's, I don't think there's any way to improve on it. It was his bottom line, and it's our bottom line, and it simply says this, that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. That in all of our conversations, we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And we gave you this little hand motion to remind you, keep it open, be open, be quick to listen, quick to listen, quick to listen, and slow to speak. And if you're like me, throughout these, this last month, God's given you plenty of opportunities to practice that. And it's really hard, and it's, it's a little bit frustrating for us, but just so you don't forget, because at the end of this, we won't come back to this for a while, at the end of it, I want to make sure you don't forget, so I'm going to have you say it with me one final time. Are you ready? We're all going to say it together, whether you're, you're watching this at home, driving in a car with your friend, or you're, you're, you know, you're sitting in your room by yourself. I feel sorry for you. We're going to have you say it with us anyway. Are you ready? On the count of three, let's all say it together. Quick. T- okay, you know I'm going to have you say it again. That was like so half-hearted. Some of you are, are not saying it, I think, so you don't remember, and then you can't be held accountable to it. Ignorance is not bliss. We're going to say it together one more time. You ready? Quick to listen, slow to speak. That's what we were encouraged to do, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And then one of the things James, he continues on through the conversation. He kind of leaves us down a little bit. He, he starts off by telling us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And then he tells us, yeah, but your mouth, it's just uncontrollable. It's, it's untamable that you'll never get to a place where, where you're in complete control, that you'll have to spend every waking moment of every day putting a guard on your mouth, trying to guard the words you say, trying basically to keep all the bad words in, all the unwholesome things in, and only let the good words out, that you never reach a place where you're just in control. And then he just kind of leaves us. Yeah, your mouth, it's a terrible thing. Good luck. Then we got to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, last week, he gave us some encouraging words. He, he, he just doesn't kind of lift us up, but he lifts us up, and then he kind of lifts the bar. He kind of lifts the standard with us. He, he really, he, and I had you memorize this phrase. This was in Ephesians. He, he starts off by saying, let no unwholesome word. I asked you to memorize this. Remember, let no unwholesome word. Let no distasteful word. Let nothing that's kind of stinky or rotten. That's what that, that actual Greek word that they translate to unwholesome. It really means like stinking and rotten flesh. Really, we, we, we said it this way, right? We have to avoid fish mouth. Or, or really what we want you to do is just avoid being this guy. Just don't look like, don't put the fish back in your mouth. Don't say words that, that, are, that are unwholesome. Don't allow any words that are stinking. Don't allow your language to, 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 to be so filled with things that aren't good, that aren't valuable. Let good words come out, words that are helpful. He's given us some word pictures first with fish mouth. And then he says, he says this, he says, really, I, I want you to treat your conversations like they're construction sites. That's really what I want you to do. I want you to treat your conversation like it's a construction site and the words you used are used or should be used to build each other up. Or essentially he says this, that, that when you're, you're interacting with people as far as your words go, that when you leave the conversation, when you leave, that the person you're talking with is better for having that conversation when you walk away. That you haven't spent your time tearing them down and undoing whatever God's trying to do in your life, in their life, but that you've used your words to build them up. Treat your conversations like they're construction sites. Because your words are building materials. 
And then he, he really, he, he kind of dives a little deeper into the conversation and he gets a little bit more personal. And he, and he says, you know, I, I, these words are so important. He said, but for some of you, he said, I, I, I got to go e even deeper than this. He said, because my guess is the reason you use the words you do, the reason you have the conversations the way you have the conversations is that you're holding something in your heart. Right? He said, have, have you ever wondered why that kind of stuff even comes out of you? It's because you've been holding on to something that you need to let go of. And he says, I want you to let go of all bitterness. I want you to let go. Don't stop it. He said, I want you to like pack it in a bag. Bitterness, anger, rage, malice. Put it in a bag. Bring it out to the street. Leave it there for, tra for the trash guy and don't touch it again. Let go of all bitterness because bitterness affects you. Bitterness is holding the people around you accountable to something that they don't owe you. That somebody in your past has hurt you. Somebody in your past has affected you. And it's carried with you all of these years. And now the people you love and the people you value the most are being hurt by the words you use because of what somebody else did to you in the past. And he said, really, the only answer for, for bitterness then is what? Forgiveness. That we need to forgive. That we need to, to basically say to the people in our past who aren't even asking, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve so that I can give the people around me that I love what they do deserve. I'm going to forgive you of the debt that you occurred on me. The, the thing that you, that you did to me, I'm going to forgive you of it, even though you're not asking. Because I value the people around me the most, and I need to give them what they need. So he said, you need to choose to forgive them. And he says this because it's impossible to be a builder if you're, if you're being bitter. It's impossible. You can't build people up with your words if you're harboring bitterness in your heart. So you have to let go of bitterness so that you can be a builder, so that you can encourage people and build people up with your words. Now, now today, we're, we're going to take the conversation a little further. <clears throat> we're gonna, I really, what I want to look at is for those of us that have had this experience, that, that have carried around some bitterness, that, that have had this experience in our life, maybe somebody robbed your childhood, or somebody destroyed your first marriage, or, or somebody affected how you grew up, and, and it kind of gave you this kind of bitterness. That, that when we grow up that way, that we still have the opportunity. And, and, and for, for those of us, it, it's really this interesting thing, and it doesn't happen to all of us, but, but for some of us, what goes around comes back around. That maybe we were affected, but that the people that are affected us someday are going to need us. That at some point in our life, we felt powerless, but maybe the tables are going to turn and we're going to be in the position of power. And when you're in the position of power, what do you do with the people that once had power over you and now are coming to you? Well, what do you do with the people that once hurt you and now are coming to you needing help? You see, this is a really interesting story. I told you last week that if the greatest story ever told was the story of Jesus coming to the world to forgive you of your sins so that you could spend eternity with his father. That, that if that was the greatest story ever told, the second greatest story ever told is the one we're going to look at today. It takes place in the book of Genesis. And what's amazing about this story is that the entire plan, the entire redemptive plan of God sending his son to redeem us so that we could be in a relationship with him hung on one man's one sentence. Let me say that again. The entire plan that God had planned to redeem humanity, to redeem this race, hung on a single man's single sentence. It's an amazing story. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. If, you've, if you, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, you've read a little bit. If you start in Genesis, it's going to take you a long time to get to Jesus. But it won't take you long before you meet this man. This is the man where the whole story kind of builds around. This man's name is Abraham. It won't take you long before you meet Abraham. Abraham was a man who was chosen by God. God asked him, hey, I want you to head out to this land, and if when you do that, I'm going to make you a family, and I'm going to make your family into a nation, and through that nation, I'm going to bless the entire world. Abraham was married, and they, he and his wife were older, and they kind of laughed like, yeah, we're not, we don't even have a kid. How are we going to be a family? 
Well, sure enough, God sends them a son. Their son's name is Isaac. <clears throat> Isaac has two sons. His two sons' name, or one of his sons' names, rather, is Jacob. And Jacob, like this is kind of a measly start. You look at this, you're like, yeah, how is this family ever going to become a nation? How is it ever going to bless the world? Well, Jacob gets the ball rolling. Jacob has like 12 kids, right? He has, he has 12 kids. These, this is kind of building, and as these people marry and they have kids, like you can kind of get the idea that like two, three, four generations later, that there's, there's some tribes, there's some, there's some big people groups. This is the start of a nation, especially with ancient standards. So the start of a nation happens through this man, Abraham. It goes all the way down to this man, Jacob, who has 12 sons. One of his 12 sons, and this is the one we're going to focus on today, one of his 12 sons, really his favorite of his 12 sons, is a man named Joseph. Now, Joseph is his favorite son because Jacob had a favorite wife. And his favorite wife gave birth to Joseph. And really, the takeaway for this, especially for you men, that if you hear nothing else today is this. Don't have a favorite wife. <laughs> have one wife. He had a few. He had few wives, then he had a few other ladies that he had kids with, and he had a favorite, and this created a ton of resentment. Jacob, Joseph was his favorite. His wife then had, uh, his favorite wife rather, then had another son named Benjamin, and she gave birth, to, uh, when she was giving birth to Benjamin, she died. So Benjamin isn't the favorite because he looks at Benjamin, he has all this resentment. Jo Joseph is the favorite, and he spoils Joseph, and Joseph knows he's the favorite. Better yet, the rest of the brothers know he's the favorite. So Joseph grows up with these 12 brothers, and uh, <clears throat> they, they really, they just hate him. They resent him. They don't like anything about him because their dad loves him more than he loves the rest of them. Joseph is spoiled. He doesn't have to go out in the fields and work. His dad makes pretty clothes for him. Literally, his dad made him a coat of many colors, like that Technicolor dream coat that you can see from miles away. One afternoon, <clears throat> the father asked Joseph, hey, go, go check on your brothers. They're out, they're out in the fields working, and sometimes they'd be out there for days. Go check on them. Joseph hated this job because he knew how much his brothers hated him and his brothers hated when Joseph showed up even more. But Joseph loved his dad and he followed his dad's command and he starts making his way out to the field to see his, his brothers. And his brothers see him from a long way off and they just get tired of it. And they're like, you know what? We're done. We are sick of this kid. We're sick of this, this unfair treatment. We're gonna put an end to it. And they decide they're going to kill their brother. They gab their brother, they rip the cloak off him and they throw him down into a pit. Now, this isn't a pit filled with water. It's just an empty pit, but it's still not a nice place, right? Joseph, he's a teenage boy. His brothers are big. They're strong. They're strapping. They're older than him. I just imagine, if you can imagine it, he's scared to death. He's in a pit. His brothers have turned on him. There's 10 of them against one. There's no way out. He knows whatever fate awaits him isn't a good fate. His brothers grab him. They throw him in a pit, and then they decide, hey, before we kill him, let's eat. Literally, the scripture says this. As they sat down to eat their meal, they decided, hey, before we do anything, we're going to sit and we're going to eat lunch, and then we'll get to killing him. They looked up, and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, from far away. And then one of the brothers speaks up. One of the brothers decides, hey, well, wait a second. Like, is this really a good idea? Judah speaks up to the rest of the brothers, and he says this. What will we gain? Or really, what's in it for us if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Like, what, what happens if we do this? We get nothing out of it. I mean, we've got to do extra work. Now we've got to come up with a story. We've got to fabricate a lie. We've got to make it look like something bad happened to him. And his brother's thinking, yeah, Judah, that's right. What is in it for us? So Judah develops a plan. He says, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. And then after all, and all this, this compassion just flows from his brothers. After all, he is our brother, right? He is our own flesh and brother thinking, you're right. He is our brother. We won't kill him. We'll just sell him to a bunch of people so they can kill him. Great idea. 
That's what they do. They, they literally, they reach down in the pit and they grab Joseph out of the pit. They get called the Ishmaelites over. Joseph, I imagine, as this teenage boy, he's like, he's scared to death. He sees this group of people he doesn't know. They're all talking in different languages. And this is like multiple languages because the Ishmaelites is just a, a, like a conglomeration, groups of people from many nations. He doesn't know what they're saying. He doesn't know what's about to happen. He just knows the fate that awaits him is absolutely horrible. They sell him to the Ishmaelites. But something incredible happens. The author makes sure to point this out. And this is kind of the theme that runs through this entire story. The Bible says this. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. When he was in Egypt, <clears throat> or he was, sorry, he was with the Ishmaelites. He was taken down to Egypt. He was there. He didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, these Ishmaelites are kind of slave traders. So they're going to sell him off to the highest bidder, uh, whoever would, to do whatever they want. He's down in Egypt. They strip him of his clothes. Everyone examines him. Potiphar, he's a rich man in Egypt. He's an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. He bought Joseph, taking him home from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Joseph, the favorite brother, the one with the beautiful coat, the one who was the favorite, was kidnapped, taken down to a foreign land, and then sold into slavery. And then here's the promise. Here's the thing that the author doesn't want you to forget. The author reminds us of this. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. That even though things didn't look great, the Lord was with Joseph. And we look at this and we say, really? It doesn't look like the Lord's with you. You've been kidnapped. You've been sold into slavery. You're there to work for, for uh, the master of a foreign land as a slave. How can you say the Lord is with him? But the author doesn't want you to forget. Even though the story looks one way, something's happening behind the scenes that we can't see, that we may not understand. The Lord is with Joseph and he prospered. And sure enough, he was. Joseph worked for Potiphar for, for many years. Weeks went by, months went by. Joseph grew in the house. He grew in favor. He was really good at administrative tasks. So Potiphar, he kind of turned everything over to him. He, he turned everything over so that Joseph was just kind of running his house, running his palace. Potiphar took notice of Joseph, but so did someone else, Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife saw Joseph, a young man, strong, administrative, put together, a little bit more powerful than the rest of the slaves. She approaches Joseph and says, Slave, I require your presence. I want you to come sleep with me. And for the first time in her life, she gets an answer she never heard before. No, no, I will not sleep with you. You see, in ancient culture, slaves didn't say no. Slaves were slaves. Slaves really didn't even talk. They did whatever they were asked to do, whatever they were commanded to do. She said, this isn't a request. I'm commanding you. Come and lay with me. He says, no. And then he gives this incredible reason. He says, no, your husband, Potiphar, he has entrusted everything to, to, in this house under my control except you. So how can I do this? And then he gives another reason. I love this. He says, how, how can I do such a wicked thing and even sin against God? Now, I'm not sure this lady knew what sin was, but she knew this wasn't a compliment. So you're calling me a sinner that I'm trying to, I'm a temptress trying to entice you to sin? How dare you? Do you know who I am? I am the wife of Potiphar, one of, one of the strongest, one of the most powerful men in Egypt. How dare you? And she pursued and she pursued. Joseph kept saying, no, I won't do it. No, I won't do it. Until finally she had enough of this stubborn little slave boy. And she accused Joseph of raping her. And Potiphar did, of course, what Potiphar had to do. Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And Joseph's story again looks down. It, it, it looks awful. It looks like, like, man, could anything worse happen to this poor kid? For no reason at all, he was kidnapped. He was sold into slavery. 
Then he was sold to a master and he worked his tail off and deserved credit and deserved glory and deserved favor. And then for no reason at all except for being an upstanding citizen, an upstanding slave, for not sleeping with his master's wife, he's arrested and he's thrown in prison. And this isn't just any prison. The text describes it as a, as a dungeon. Like it's low. It, it, it is the low of the low. Like this is where they put the bad people. This is where awful things happen. Joseph is sent there again, but the author reminds us once more. But while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him. To which we say, seriously? Like if the Lord was with him, wouldn't she be in prison? If the Lord was with him at the beginning, wouldn't his brothers have been the one in the pit and his brothers been the one sold into slavery? Like if, if you're following God, if God is with you, if God is showing favor, shouldn't good things happen? Right? Aren't good things supposed to happen to good people when God's favor, when the Lord is with him? See, but what's incredible about this is, is that even in these moments where it looks like to Joseph and it looks to the rest of us as we read the story, that God wasn't with him, that God had somehow abandoned him. Here, here's the secret and here's the thing that makes Joseph so much different than so many people who, who go through this. Joseph lived as if God was with him. In the moment where it seemed like God had abandoned him, Joseph didn't live like God had abandoned him. He wasn't angry. He wasn't shaking his fist at God. He wasn't cussing God out at night. He lived as if God was with him the entire time. That's something we need to remember for our story because so many of us, at some point in our lives, we feel like Joseph. We feel like we're the ones who are being downcast. We feel like we're the ones who are being tossed to the side. We feel like the one that God has forgotten about and abandoned. But as the story goes, the Lord was with him and he showed him kindness and he granted him favor even in the eyes of the prison warden. And I read that and I think, really? Like that, that's God being with him? Like if you know the prison warden, you're not, you're, like that's not good. But he knew the prison warden. And he had favor with the prison warden. And somehow this is supposed to tell us that God was with him. And we read this, and, and, and if you're anything like me, you think, but, but that's not how the story should go. If God were with him, he would be the prison warden. If God were with him, he would be over these things. But Joseph's story takes a different turn again. He's in a dungeon. He's in prison, following God, living as if God were with him the entire time. Not living as if he'd been forgotten about, not living as if he'd been abandoned. And really what this tells me and what it should tell us, what it should tell the readers is this, that bad things have been happening to good people for a long time. But the corollary is this, that God has been with people while bad things have happened for a long time. That just because you follow God doesn't mean only good things happen. That even though God would be with you, bad things might happen. But here's the kicker, and here's what we're going to see as the story goes on. We don't see the end. We don't see the end while we're going through it. We only know what's happening right now. Joseph couldn't see where the story was going. His brothers didn't know what was going to happen in the end. But God knew the whole time. And even in the midst of suffering, and even in the midst of what seems like tragedy... God was with him, and God had a plan. So Joseph's in the dungeon. He's there for, for weeks, for months, for years. Pharaoh, he sends down two of, his, uh, uh, two of his people, a cupbearer, or really a, a butler, and another guy, and they send him down to prison. And, and they're there, and they're there for a while, and, and one day they wake up, and I don't understand how Joseph even notices, but one day they wake up, and Joseph noticed they're feeling down. 
And I read that and I think, yeah, well, of course they're down. They're like, they're, they're down in the dungeon. Like you don't get any downer, right? You don't get any worse than that. It's, it's awful. You've received a death sentence. But he woke up and somehow he realized like, hey guys, something's just different about today. You seem more down than you usually are. What's up? And the guy responded, well, we had these dreams and, and they just seemed so vivid and they seemed so real. And I, I feel like they must mean something, but we're not sure what they mean. And it's, it's really bothering us. Joseph said, well, give me a shot. I, I've interpreted dreams before when I was younger. So they begin to tell Joseph his dreams, and they're kind of laughing, like, who is this kid, this dungeon guy, to tell us our, our dreams? But they begin to tell them their dreams. The butler starts, and he tells them his dream, and Joseph says, hey, I have good news for you. In three days, it's going to be Pharaoh's birthday, and Pharaoh's going to lift you up. He's going to lift your head up. He's going to reinstate you to be his butler and his wine taster again. And he's like, really? He's like, yeah, it'll happen in three days. He said, but here's what I need you to do. And this is such an honest remark. He said, here's what I want you to do. When you get there, remember me. Tell them about me because I shouldn't be here. I'm not supposed to be here. This isn't the life I wanted. This isn't where I'm supposed to. I was kidnapped. I was sold into slavery. I did nothing wrong. And here I am in prison. When you get there, please remember me. And I imagine the butler, his reaction would be the same. I said, dude, if you're right, if in three days I'm out of here, sure, I'll remember you. I'll absolutely tell them about you. And then the next guy sitting with him, he's so excited because he heard the dream. He's like, well, let me tell you my dream. And he tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph's like, uh, so, so I got some bad news. Your head will be lifted up, but it will be lifted up off your body. And then you will be impaled. Sorry, tough. I mean, I don't know why he goes into this. He even describes what's going to happen after he's impaled, that, that birds will come and pick the flesh off his bones. And it's like, why go into that level of detail, right? Like, Joseph, couldn't it just have been as simple as like, like yeah, I, I'm just not sure. We'll just... Just give it a few days and we'll see what happens. Like, I, I just don't know what the ending is going to be. And it's a little too, too hard to, to interpret. No, he gives him this incredible detail. Sure enough, three days go by. One man's beheaded and impaled and left to rot, and the other man is exalted back in his position. And just if you could, and I know this is difficult, but if you could, imagine Joseph. Imagine being in his shoes. Like, there's a glimmer of hope. I mean, you just follow his story. It's like, I was, I was terrified, and I was thrown into a pit, and then I was sold to slavers, and who knew what happened to him when he was on that journey? Who knew how he was treated? And then he was stripped naked as people walked around him and looked at him and decided what he was worth and where he should go and, and what he would be used for. And then as he went into a house as a slave, he worked hard, and he, he was promoted and worked himself up to be kind of second in command of the house, and then he was lied about and thrown in prison. I mean, there was, just, there was moments in his life where he thought, like, maybe I could live with this, but, but it's still not the life I want. And then this man who said, I'll never forget you. I'll tell them about you. He gets out. Day one goes by, and Joseph thinks, maybe today's the day. Maybe someone on the outside is going to hear my story, and they're going to come and rescue me. Three days go by. A week goes by. A month goes by. And the text tells us that the butler forgets about Joseph. No recollection at all. And once again, I'm sure Joseph feels like, here I am, completely forgotten about. Like God has abandoned me. Like God is silent. And I'm just left here to rot. And my guess is, at some point in your life, you felt the same way. Completely forgotten about. Completely abandoned. Like not even God knows or God cares. But Joseph's story isn't done. The text tells us that later Pharaoh has a dream. And his dream is so real and so vivid, it concerns him so much that he calls in all of his, his advisors and his wise men and his magicians. And he calls, he calls them in and he tells them their dream. And not one of them can, can begin to interpret. I mean, not one of them can even guess. I mean, if you're there, I, I feel like 
Pharaoh's kind of like a god, right? He thinks of himself as a god. He can just on a whim punish you. I maybe make something up. No, no one even tries. I have no idea, Pharaoh. And the butler, the wine taster, he's there and he's like, hey, hey, Pharaoh, you know what? I remember a few, a few years ago, and, and, and you know, this is kind of a blip on our radar. You don't have, we don't have to go back there and revisit this, but remember that time when you weren't too happy with me and you sent me to prison just for like a few days? Just, it was, we were just there for a little bit. Remember that time when you did that? Yeah, well, when I was there, I had a dream. And there was this Hebrew guy. I don't even know if he's still there. To be honest, Pharaoh, I don't even know if he's still alive. But if he's there, you should call him because he, he interpreted my dream and it came to pass exactly as he said it would. I, I think his name was Joseph. You should reach out and see if he's there because maybe he can help you. That's exactly what Pharaoh does. So Pharaoh, he sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought up from the dungeon. And Joseph gets out, and they give him a shave because he's been in the dungeon for years and looks like a mess. And they change his clothes because he smells like dungeon, like this isn't a great place to be. And then he came before Pharaoh. But before he comes there, there's all these people, and I imagine there's all this commotion. Joseph's a slave. He's in prison. He's left to rot, and he stinks, and, and you know, his clothes are a mess. And they pull him out, and they, they shave him, and they shower him, and they pair him for him. And he's like, what's going on? And the attendant's like, well, Pharaoh wants to meet with you. He's like, Pharaoh wants to meet with me? Why does he want to meet with me? He's like, well, here's what you have to do. You have to, you have to approach him this way. You have to walk this way. You, you bow like this. You kneel. You can only get this close. Don't get too close because Pharaoh, he doesn't like people that close, and you don't know what's going to happen. You have to do it. This- okay, he wants to go, and they just kind of throw him in a room. I mean, just imagine what Joseph, he's just like, no time to even comprehend what's going on right now in his life. And he's just forced in front of Pharaoh. And he gets before Pharaoh And Pharaoh begins to tell him this. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream. Not the same kind of dream we think of when we hear that. He says, I had a dream, but no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And then Joseph, I love this. He gives the most honest, really, this is like one of the best responses and really one of the most courageous responses ever said throughout history. Talking to a man who thinks of himself as God, Joseph says this, I can't do it. Like, do you know what Pharaoh can do? Do you know what he would do to you, Joseph? And Joseph, I can't do it. But then he gives Pharaoh a, a, like this incredible response. It's like, Joseph, if, if you're there, maybe fake it. Maybe come up with something. But he, no, right off the bat, I can't do it. And then he kind of one-ups himself to dig a deeper hole. He says this. <clears throat> then Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God. And the danger in this is Pharaoh thinks of himself as a God. And he's like, no, 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 Pharaoh. You're like a little G God. But big G God, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he deserves. Like, Pharaoh, I know you think you're important. I know you think of yourself as a God. I know you can end my life right now if you wanted. But I've got news for you. You're not the God. The God, the God I serve, the God this Hebrew kid that was in your dungeon, in your prison, left to rot, that God, the God that said he was with me, but I can't see him anywhere, the God that says he's never left me, but I feel completely abandoned. Yeah, that God, he's gonna give you the answer. I can't do it, Pharaoh, but God can. And I'm sure when he says this to Pharaoh, the entire like, courtroom or palace room is just like in awe, like gasping, like, how dare he? Pharaoh, surely he's going to kill him. Pharaoh is kind of pleased with Joseph. So Pharaoh begins to, to tell him his dream. He begins to describe to Joseph his dream. And Joseph listens to the entire dream. And then Joseph responds to the interpretation. He says, hey, Pharaoh, here's the deal. Here's why God has given you this sequence of dreams, because he wants you to know what's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. He wants you to know that, that this is actually what, what it's going to be. This reinterpretation or this, this repeating of the dream is just so you don't miss it. 
Here's the interpretation of that. There are going to be seven incredible years for your nation. Seven incredible years. It's going to rain. You're going to have, you're going to have incredible crops. Your grain is going to go through the roof. People are going to be swimming in grain. There's going to be so much grain, you're not going to know what to do with. As a matter of fact, the economy is probably going to drop really low because the price of grain is going to go way down because there's so much demand. You are going to have so much grain for seven years. It's going to be seven years of plenty. And then it's going to stop raining. And there's going to be a famine and you're going to have no crop, and you're going to have no grain. And God wants you to know, Pharaoh, that there will be seven years of plenty, and there will be seven years of famine. As if that wasn't bad enough to say to Pharaoh, then Joseph begins to say, now Pharaoh, here's my advice. To which I imagine all the people outside the room are like, seriously? This kid we just drug up from prison is going to give Pharaoh, the, like really the strongest man in the entire world, advice? He says, Pharaoh, here's what I would do if I were you. Here's what you need to do. Over these seven years of plenty, you need to tax people on their grain. You need to take 20% of their grain, and you need to do it in your name so that people know that it's you. They, you need to tax them on the grain. But here's the thing. They're not going to mind because they're going to have so much grain they're not going to know what to do with. Take 20% of all the grain, and then in certain cities, build these granaries, build these, these massive silos and store the grain. Store the grain through the seven years so that when the seven years of want, when the seven years of, uh, of famine come, you're all prepared for it. He said, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be so much grain during those seven years of plenty. People are going to come and try to buy grain from you. He said, sell it to them, but continue to tax the people the 20%. And when the seven years of famine come, here's what I want you to do, Pharaoh. He said, then I want you to turn around and I want you to begin to sell the grain back to the people. People will be so desperate, they'll give you whatever you want. They'll trade their cattle. They'll do anything to get the grain. He said, as a matter of fact, people from other nations will come to you to get your grain. He said, but Pharaoh, you, you have to do this and you have to do it quick. Because for the next seven years, you got to find somebody who can do this and not take their eye off the ball. Things have got to be set in motion because you only have seven years to prepare for what's coming. He hears this, and Pharaoh is just kind of in awe at this young kid, and everyone else around him is just like, who does this kid think he is? Pharaoh looks at Joseph, this young man who not just interpreted his dream, but then decided to give Pharaoh advice, and he says this. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. Pharaoh doesn't even believe in God, but he knows there's just something different about this kid. He's like, well, no, I don't think we can. So then Pharaoh looks to Joseph and he says this, Since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are, Joseph. Joseph, really? I mean, I was just in prison. Like, I, I don't know. Pharaoh says, you shall be in charge of my palace, and all of my people will submit to you and to your orders. And which I, I imagine the people who are like second in line and third and fourth line are like, are you serious? Like, wait a minute, we've known this kid for 45 minutes, and you're making him second in command of your entire nation? Like, Pharaoh! But no one says that, because no one questions Pharaoh. <clears throat> Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And Joseph's story, from a young man who was kidnapped, sold into slavery, worked as a slave, accused of rape and thrown in prison, goes from being a slave and a prisoner in one moment to being the second in command of the greatest nation on the planet at that time. It's a complete reversal. As the story goes, Joseph's brothers, who are still alive, and his family who are still alive in another nation, <clears throat> the famine comes, the seven-year plenty comes, and everybody's enjoying it. Pharaoh taxes them. Joseph gets right to work, builds up the granary and the silos. There's all this grain, and then the seven years of famine come. 
And, and the people, just as Joseph predicted, they completely forgot about the seven years of greatness and just focused on the seven years of, of awfulness, of, of this famine, of this want. And they begin, Joseph begins to sell the grain back and people will buy it for whatever he sells. They'll trade their cattle, they'll trade their lands, anything to survive. Well, Joseph's brothers are in another nation and the famine's hitting them too. They're without grain. They're, they're about to starve. <clears throat> and I love this. It, we kind of move to this side of the story and Jacob, Joseph's father who's still alive, <clears throat> he learned that there was grain in Egypt. And then he says to his sons, and I find this so funny, he says to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? Like, guys, we're about to die. And there's grain in another land. What are you doing just sitting around dying? He continues, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Like, guys, get your act together. Well, the 10 brothers, they get their act together. They, they load up the camels, whatever they have. They head down to Egypt. They end up in the same city that Joseph is in on that day dispensing grain. They come before Joseph, and this is really incredible. They come before Joseph, who's now the governor of the land. He's selling grain to all of its people. And when they come down, they bow before him. But here's the kicker. They don't recognize him. They don't recognize him at all. The text tells us this. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. They didn't recognize him. So he pretends to be a stranger. And he begins to ask him, well, you, you, you guys want some grain? Yeah, we want some grain. Well, who are you? Well, they, they kind of tell him who, who they are. And he's like, oh, I, I, don't, I think you guys are spies. And, and over the next few chapters, you have to read the story because it's incredible. He just kind of toys with them. He, he accuses them of being spies. And then he says, do you guys have any other brothers? Knowing they have a younger brother at home. And he says, yeah, we have one more younger brother. Okay, I want you to go home, travel however many hundreds of miles or thousands of miles is, buy donkey or camel, take forever, go get your younger brother and come home. But, but just to make sure you come back, I'm going to hold one of your other brothers hostage. Like, no, you can't do that. I can do whatever I want. You want my grain. So they go, they get the younger brother, they come back. When they're there, Benjamin's there, the younger brother. <clears throat> Joseph loves Benjamin, and to get Benjamin to stay, Joseph hides something in his sack and accuses him of stealing. Now Benjamin can't leave. And there's just this big game between Joseph and his brothers as he's toying with him. And I'm sure part of him's trying to figure out, are, are you the same like jerk brothers who sold me into slavery, or have you changed? Are you the same guys, or are you different? And I'm sure all these other thoughts came to his head uh, of his experience of being sold into slavery and who knows what happened on that journey uh, of working in Potiphar's house as a slave and then being accused and, and being cast into a dungeon, having to work his way up again. And now here he is with roles completely changed. I'm sure all this stuff went through his mind. And I'm sure at that moment, Joseph was tempted to do some of the things we would be tempted to do. You want migraine out? Man, I have the power. But here's the question that Joseph had to answer that I think ultimately we have the answer. The question is this, what do you do when you've got the power and your words determine the destiny of your enemy? For some of you, you may be going through that right now. For others, it may happen later on in your life. But what do you do when the roles are reversed and you have the power and your words determine the destiny of your enemy? How do you react? You see, Joseph, here's the thing. Through this entire story, Joseph lived as if God was with him. He didn't hold the bitterness. He didn't hold the anger. He didn't hold the rage. He let it go, and he lived as if God was with him, even though in his natural eyes he couldn't see it. He couldn't believe it. He lived as if God was with him. The story goes on. This happens over a few months. The brothers are there before him again. Joseph's there with all of his attendants and all of his, his guards and his counsel. And Joseph does something that's completely unexpected. In this moment, he just can't, he can't take it anymore. Joseph could no longer control himself, and before all of his attendants, he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. 
And everyone leaves the room except for the 10 brothers sitting before him, the men who were responsible for all of Joseph's hardship. There's no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And I just imagine this is the moment he had been waiting for since they walked back into the room. He probably dreamt about this. I finally got you where I want you. And payback's mine. His brothers are there before him. And Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. And they wet themselves. Okay, the text really doesn't say that, but I mean, let's be honest. I'm pretty sure their bowels just released, right? I mean, in this moment... They're kind of trying to come up with anything they can. Their minds are racing. They're fabricating stories. Well, here's why, and, and we really didn't mean to, and we didn't know. And, and they're, just, they're just scared to death. They're expecting the worst. They, they, they're literally thinking there are 10 stakes outside of Joseph's house that they're going to be speared through. And this isn't going to be fast, right? They're just awaiting the worst, thinking it's going to take time. They're going to do one at a time. They're going to tie the other one up as they watch one brother put a spear through him until his body weight carries him down on the spear and the spear touches his heart and he dies. This could take hours. It could take days. They're just, they're thinking the worst is coming. And here's what Joseph says. Is my father still alive? He doesn't hold him accountable. He doesn't even bring up what they did. Is my dad alive? Guys, I miss him so much. I've missed you. I've missed, I've missed the family. I don't know what's going on. But of course, his brothers, they weren't able to answer him because they were terrified. They were scared to death at his very presence. And Joseph is just overwhelmed with his emotion. He is just overwhelmed. He says, guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and I want you to get your kids and your grandkids and your people. Get my dad. I want you to bring things back. Here, I'm going to send you with so much grain, you're not going to know what to do with. Go and get your home and bring your home to me. And here's what I promise. I will take care of you for the rest of your lives. Just go get my family and come back. I've missed you so much. I just want to know my family. Brothers can't believe it. They leave Joseph and they go and they get their father and they bring him back. And Jacob and the, the 10, 11 brothers, their kids, their people, they all live. And Joseph provides for them until Jacob dies. Jacob, Joseph's father, dies and the brothers are again scared to death. They think this is it. Joseph, this is what Joseph's been waiting for. We've been his hostages. He's going to exact his vengeance on us. This is what he's been waiting for. <clears throat> they come to Joseph and they throw themselves down at Joseph's feet. And they say to him, we are your slaves. Please let us live, let our kids live, let our grandkids live, let our people live. And we will be your slaves, Joseph. And Joseph has this incredible response. It's an incredible response because Joseph, in our eyes, in the world's eyes, has every right at this moment to exact his vengeance and to pay them what they were due. But here's the thing. He didn't hold on to his bitterness. He had let his bitterness go. And just as a foreshadowing of the future of Jesus who would come to the world and instead of holding us accountable, he would decide to forgive us of our sins, Joseph does the very same things for his brothers. Instead of holding them accountable to the things they did, he decides to forgive. And Joseph says to them, I love this, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I mean, I know I'm not God, but am I in the place of God? Do, do I have the, the, the right to do this? It's the same question, the same thing we're going to toil with. Now that I have the power, should I use my power and my words to destroy my enemies or to lift them up? And then Joseph, with all his wisdom, says this, You intended to harm me, but God, 
You know, the God that looked like he wasn't part of my story, the God that said he was with me, but you really couldn't see him. But God intended this entire thing for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You thought you were hurting me. You thought you were destroying me. You thought you had killed me. Hey, guys, I got news for you. God intended this all along so that I could save not just other people, but so that I could save you and my dad and my nephews and my nieces. Guys, I forgive you. So don't be afraid, Joseph says. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. And Joseph kept every word. And he provided for his family until he passed away, until the end of his life. And what an incredible mirror of our relationship with Jesus, of the future Joseph that would come. And say to the whole world, I'm not holding you accountable. I'm forgiving you. But when roles are reversed, when what goes around comes back around, what will you do? What will you do when you've got the power and your words determine the destiny of your enemy? Will you pay them back? Or will you use your words to pave the way forward? What will you do? Because for some of you, that's going to happen. For some of you, that's happening now. Somebody robbed you of your childhood. Someone is responsible for destroying your marriage. Someone is responsible for you not being able to raise your children. Someone is responsible for you missing out on the career you could have had. And when it's, when it's all flipped around, when you have your time, will you pay them back? Or will you pave the way forward? You see, my hope is that when that, when that moment awaits you, that you'll be ready. And that you might be the same man that Joseph was. The same woman that Joseph was. I'll forgive and I'll pave the way forward. Because what was meant for harm, ultimately God used for his good. See, and that's my hope. My hope is that bitterness doesn't control you. My hope is that rage doesn't control you. My hope is that anger doesn't control you, but that you let it go. And here's the thing. When you get to that moment of being in the place of power, that's not where the, really the decision is made. The decision is made between now and then. Will you live your life, even though it seems like God has abandoned you? Will you live your life, even though it seems like God has forgotten about you, as if God is with you? Or will you live and become the same people you don't like? You see, in God, there's forgiveness. Really, what I want you to experience is in God, there's freedom. And that awaits you if you're willing to pave the way forward and forgive and be like Joseph and be like Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up if you would. I've asked them to close in a song. I know we're, we're a little late. Just give me a few more minutes. There's, there's a phrase in this song that, that says, God, you're bigger than I thought you were. You're bigger than I thought. And I keep thinking about this story of Joseph thinking, isn't that exactly what he must have felt at the end? God, I didn't see you. God, there were moments where I doubted. There were moments where I wanted to give up. There were moments where I wanted to shake my hand and cuss you out. But at the end, you are so much bigger than I thought. You've been in this from the very beginning. You've never forgotten. You've never abandoned. You've worked all this horrible situation out for my good and for the good of other people. And my hope for you this morning is if you find yourself in this moment struggling, dealing with this bitterness, with this anger, with, with, with the people that have robbed you of your life, if you would give it to God, if you would live in this moment like God is with you and he has a plan for you, 
you'll find freedom you never thought you could ever experience again. And when that moment awaits you, when that time comes and you're put in that position where you have the power and your words determine the destiny of your enemy, you'll be able to pave the way forward and not use that moment to pay them back.